10, verse 19 to 25, and then I'll jump over to Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 before I read this. Just a word on um, our topic. We've been, this is week two of a three-week mini-series on worship and just talking about um, the subject of worship. And um, let me just say two things about, about this so far. One, as your pastor session, we would love to hear how God is wrestling with you, or how he's changing you, or how he's revealing himself to you in certain ways, and as it pertains to the topic of worship, what you're learning about worship in general. But also, and I, I recognize that when anybody gets up and talks about worship in a church, um, there can be a lot of anxiety. Uh, there can be a lot of fear, too. He didn't say this, or he's not talking about that over there. And I would just encourage any of us uh, certainly to come talk to me if you have questions about what I meant or what we're, we're going discuss, to discuss today for sure, to please do that. That is our aim, certainly as a senior minister, but as, as a session as well, to talk with you about those things. So I, I don't necessarily uh, want to think about this as just sort of a one-way conversation. Um, I want to know how this is impacting you and how God might be growing you through the things that we're talking about as it pertains to worship. Obviously, we can't cover everything that pertains to worship in three sermons, and we're not attempting to do that, so we're just scratching the surface on big, big categories, big, big things. So let me say that by way of uh, segue into our scripture reading this morning. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, 19, verses 19 to 25, and then we'll move over to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Verse 19, Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And now from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15. He, being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, while on earth or in heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Let me pray now and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together, and we pray now that as we hear your word go out, that you would open our eyes, 
and open our ears that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not. And we pray that you would change us, that we would produce fruit by the Spirit that would lead to changed lives as your Spirit and as your Word is worked in us, as a seed is worked into good soil and produces a fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just by review, last week we, we looked at the big picture of worship and what is worship, and we're defining worship, or I'm defining worship as giving our whole selves wholly to something. Giving our whole selves completely wholly to something. And we looked at what we worship, right? And one, we said that everybody worships, whether you consider yourself religious or not, or whether you go to church, everybody worships something. And what we worship is what we find worthy, what we find ultimate value in, what we give ourselves wholly or completely to. That can be God, that can be a number of things. And then finally, we saw that worship really does something to us. Worship transforms us. And uh, as we pursue these things of worship, these things that grab our heart, there's really two directions that it takes us. One, it changes us in a direction that leads really unto death. But there is the direction where what we worship can lead unto life, that can give us rest. And we said that the only thing that's able to do that for us is the worship of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Everything else will lead to destruction, will own us as bad kings, as one pastor says, but only Christ is the one who can give us the rest that our hearts are truly looking for. And so this morning, I want to move into sort of the the, the arena of corporate worship, which I know is a big topic for many people, and there's a lot of uh, good opinions about that, and look forward to hearing them all. Um, But this morning, we're going to move into that that arena and, and kind of ask the question, what does God want in our worship? And as we, anybody who studies Scripture and studies this uh, professionally knows that the practice or the expression of worship uh, has changed and changes throughout the centuries for various reasons, and this is a good thing, and this is why the Bible doesn't have a, have a, a page or a book in it that says, here's what a worship service is, here's what you should be doing. But that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't guide us or direct us uh, into the things that, that should accompany a worship service And so that's sort of what we're going to look at this morning. And so I want to start with really the why and the how of our worship. The why and the how of worship, which is always Jesus Christ. And then we will draw then a few implications about what we can say, about what we want and hear from what we see uh, from the how and the why of, of worship. Again, this will not be exhaustive. But I want to start with the understanding that worship here, the worship of God himself, that this can only happen because you and I have been reconciled to God. Why would I want to start there? We have no right to come into the presence of God as sinful people. And this is, this is maybe harder for Westerners to, to recognize because we, we love the, like our whole country— in many ways, is, is built upon the, the, the freedom to express your faith and re- religious freedoms, to go worship who you want to worship. And that's a great thing. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But with that freedom comes this understanding that I have the right to go and worship God, and, and you do because God has made that possible. 
I want us to back up and say and recognize, though, that we are only allowed into the presence of God because we have been reconciled to him. This is our starting place. And because we have been reconciled to him, that is where we need to look to to understand what it means to come in as his people and what this should look like as a corporate worship service. And all of that ends and begins with Jesus Christ, the how and the why of worship, the one who has reconciled us to God. So as we look at our text in, beginning in, in Hebrews, verse 19, we read the word therefore. And whenever you come across the word therefore, and I know you know this, right? We read that. We know that the author um, is about to bring to conclusions things that he has said prior to this. And what are some of the things that the author of Hebrews has been talking about? Been talking about sacrifice, been talking about priests, been talking about mediate mediation. Um, and, and so as we read this, and as we think about what the original audience would have been listening to or heard, most Jews at the time would have in mind Moses and how God gave Moses the law, which had in it the regulations for temple and sacrifice in the Old Testament. That is, how God's people would be reconciled to him, how worship would be made possible. And so Hebrews comes in and it takes those laws and those regulations for atonement and redemption, big words that we'll look at later, and it shows us how Christ fulfills those things. Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things. The first thing that I want us to see from this text is that Christ is the one who gives us access to God. He is the one who gives us access to God. This is the first sort of sub-point here before we get to implications. When you look at verse 19, it says, the writer, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. In the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, priests would offer gifts and sacrifices for sins on behalf of the people. And to do that, right, priests would go from this courtyard of the temple into this inner chamber called the holy place to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. But once a year, you had a day called Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, and it happened once a year. And on this, on this day, all all of Israel's sins would be made clean. It's a very unique day, a special day. And on that day, the high priest then would go not just to the holy place, but the holy of holies, right? This another other chamber inside the temple that was separated by a curtain. And in this holy of holies sat the Ark of the Covenant where God was present with his people in a very unique way. This was a very special yet even dangerous undertaking because the priest was going into the presence of God and, 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 and if he didn't perform things correctly, well, we all know what happens when a sinful person is in the presence of a holy God. They die. And so they would actually tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest as they went in there because if things didn't go well, well, we've got to get him out of there. It would pull him out. Talk about a stressful job. But it's that curtain that separated God symbolically from the people. It's that curtain that prohibited access to God. And why? Well, in short, as we just said, God is holy. 
And while that is a sermon in and of itself, holy, a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. And the only way that that is made possible, as we, are, we learn in, in the Old Testament, is if blood is spilled to atone, to make right for the sins of others. This was the regulation. This was the practice to purify God's people and to reconcile them to God. But of course, as we know now, those sacrifices were, they, they were a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice. And as we get into the book of Hebrews, the author is saying that the curtain in the temple that prohibited access to God has now been removed and replaced with who? Christ himself who, as the text says, opens what? A new and living way to God, or what we would call salvation. Christ gives us access now. And how does he do that? Look at the text, verse 19, by what? By his blood. By his blood. In this way, everything that the Old Testament law spoke of, ceremonially speaking, actually pointed to Christ as the one who would be our ultimate what? Sacrifice. He is the one who is more superior than Moses, more superior than any animal sacrifice. He is the reason you and I have access to God because he perfectly and permanently atones for our sins with his blood. He reconciles us to God. Think of this access in Christ, if you will. Um, think of this in the way of, of the all-coveted backstage pass to your favorite performance, to whoever that is, whatever your, your favorite concert, whatever that would be, go back in time if you wanted to see somebody that maybe isn't even alive, right? Whoever your favorites are, right? We all know what that backstage pass means. It means that you get to go from the courtyard, which would be the general admission, and you get to go backstage. But not just backstage. Where do you get to go? You get to go in the room where that performer is, where that musician is, whoever it is that you're there to go see, right? This is, what, this, is what, this is what Christ does for us by means of access. Brings us into the presence of the Father because of him, and nothing else does this. This is why Christianity is always about trusting that God has made it right. Your works, my works, do not give me access to God. No matter how good they are, your money, my money, doesn't give me access to God. No matter how much or how little I have, your parents don't give you access to God. The only thing that brings you to God is Jesus Christ, and that is by faith. I, you trust that God has made it right, that he has created a way for you to be with him by Jesus' blood, by his work on the cross for you. Otherwise, you and I, we are dead in our sins and transgressions. We are what? Separated. What the curtain symbolized. We are separated still from all that is goodness and life. But thanks be to God and Jesus Christ, that is no longer the case. This is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. This is our yea and amen, friends. We have access to God now through Christ. This is the first thing. The second thing that I want us to see is that we don't just have access to God, we have an advocate 
on our behalf to God, who is Christ the Lord. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest, perhaps something you might have glanced over because you're not Catholic. But I, somebody told me I look Catholic today, so I'm making sure you know this is a tie. But since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. It was the job of the priest to represent and thus advocate for the people of God to God. So much of understanding Jesus and his salvation in the New Testament is understanding the role of the priest in the Old Testament. That on that day of atonement, the high priest would put on this special outfit before he went into the Holy of Holies that one time a year to make atonement, right, to, for, to, to offer and create forgiveness for all of the sins of Israel. And to get to that, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of what the high priest would look like. Um, I don't know if you've Googled that recently. Probably not. Um, but if, if the high priest were to walk in here dressed as he would be dressed, it would be both terrifying and awesome. And, and it's worth our time just to describe what he's wearing because it's, it's, in, it's incredibly helpful, but it's important to understand who Jesus is for us by recognizing what the high priest would wear. So three articles of clothing for this point. First, the high priest would put on an apron like ephod. And this was made of the best material woven in beautiful patterns. This is better than your Sunday best. And he would put this thing on, and on the shoulders you had two onyx stones that were uh, mounted in gold, which was heavy, weighty, on, upon the shoulders of the, of the high priest. The names then of the 12 tribes were engraved on the stones, six on one, six on the other in order of birth. This was the ephod. Second, you had the breastplate. This was fastened to the front of the ephod, and on it were 12 precious stones. 12 different and unique stones unto themselves, all just beautifully carved with the name of each tribe engraved on the stone to represent Israel, and it was set over the priest's heart. The headpiece then, the final part of the outfit, was crowned on the priest, which read, Holy to the Lord. So let's review. Right? Just get this image in your mind. Right? The ephod with two onyx stones, with the names of the twelve tribes on the shoulders, the breastplate with twelve of the, of the, of the rare stones over the, the priest's heart, the headpiece with the inscription, holy to the Lord. This was the high priest on the day of atonement. What's the point? Representation. Representation. The high priest goes in as someone who what represents not just himself, everyone. Everyone. For Israel, that would be the 12, 12 tribes. So the 12 stones were symbolic of. He goes to represent my name and my sins your name and your sins, as it were. As the high priest on this day of atonement. Alex Moyer writes it, says it best when he says, he, the high priest, was known before the Lord, not by his name, but by their names. 
With the high priest's clothing, he became them and took all they represented, all their sin and mess and injustice, all their obedience and disobedience, all their inadequacies and all their accolades too. He was known before the Lord, not by his name, but by their names. He was their mediator before God. And with the blood of the sacrifices, he pleaded or advocated their case on their behalf. Think of a really good attorney who represents or advocates for his or her client. And they, this happens, what, in a court just before the judge. What happens there? One, the attorney represents you, represents that client, right? In a sense, becomes you insofar that they plead your case the best that they can before the judge. You don't get to go before the judge. Your advocate goes before the judge. Two, you put your trust in that attorney. That's the hard part. You put your trust in the attorney, that advocate for you, that they will do a good job, that their pleading, as it were, will be enough, that a case will be made, that you will be set free. Lastly, if the judge finds you not guilty, credit goes to your advocate, the attorney, in this case. This is how the high priest worked on behalf of God's people. But now, advocating, or according to, the, to Hebrews, we have a what? A greater high priest. We have a greater, more superior advocate. Jesus is our representation before God. Just as that high priest was Israel's representation for all of them. Both as 100% God and 100% man, Jesus, by his blood, is our plea. And what the writer of Hebrews tells us is this never ceases. His plea for you never stops. And this means you will never have to wonder if the judge is going to reverse his sentence. If the judge is going to change his mind on the verdict, you don't have to worry about that. That means you can actually truly trust this advocate. You can rest in this advocate of the work that he's going to do for you. Lastly, as one forgiven and reconciled to God, Jesus receives the glory for the work that he has done on your behalf. This is what it means for Jesus to be our advocate both our access to God and our advocate before him. These are two small pieces, not small, but they're, they're, they're two pieces of, of a greater theology of understanding how worship is made possible, of how reconciliation between you and between God himself is possible for us to come here, not as... Blanking on a word right now. Yeah. Not as privileged people. Not as people because we just think we deserve to be here. But because blood has been spilled on your behalf that you can be in this place and that your worship can go to God. All right. What are the implications then? As Christ is our access and our advocate, what are the implications then of our worship in here? Okay, 
three things, probably just two with time I'm looking at. The first one is this, nothing surprising, corporate worship must be Christ-centered. It must be Christ-centered. Why? One, because Jesus is God. But two, without Jesus, we have no access to the Father. We have no plea. We are not reconciled. So Christ must be center of all that we do. This means that everything in the service centers around him. Everything in the service exalts him. This is part of the reason for the reading of Colossians 1, 15 to 20, known as Paul's hymn. What, what do you want to do when you hear that? You want to stand up and say amen. It's, a be- it's beautiful. It's true. It's right. It's why he is at the center of everything that we do. We see him as our only access and advocate to God without Christ. There is no worship. This also means, though, that he is the object of our worship, which Paul is spilling out there as well. He is the object of our worship as God himself, what we give our whole selves to wholly. So just if you weren't here last week, when when I mentioned anything else that we worship will figuratively kill us, but literally as well. If I'm worshiping beauty, right, as we we read uh, from uh, David Foster Wallace, I will die a thousand deaths for not thinking that I'm pretty enough. It's... What we give ourselves to, if it's not a gracious and loving Father, it will will destroy us. Right? And so what this means, as we come back to worship, is Christ must be the object of our worship. He is what we give our whole selves to wholly, not anything else. And some of that is easy for us. Like, yes, Jesus is God. He's died for me. Why would I not do that? Some of that's hard. Because when you go to work on Monday— a lot of the times the things that you're experiencing in here or around your church, you know, your church friends or whatever it is, doesn't make sense at work on Monday. But I'm trusting that this is right. I'm trusting that the things that, that, that I want to give my heart to are not the things that are going to give me life, that are not going to set me free, that are not what I should see as ultimately valuable, what is the precious grace and mercy of Jesus Christ himself. This is what it means to have Christ as the object of our worship when we say that we must be Christ-centered. By contrast, we don't practice man- or woman-centered worship where you are the object or the focal point of the service. As is said around our house often, you matter, but you're not the point. said about me quite a bit in our house, as a matter of fact. You matter, but you are not the point. We all matter as it pertains to the gospel and to God himself, but what we are not the point here. Christ is. Christ is. This is what it means to be Christ-centered. So our worship will be centered around him completely. And that doesn't mean we don't care about or think about you during the service. It just means that he is the object of our attention, our gaze, our focus, everything. What all we do in song, word, prayer, sacrament, sacrament it revolves around him to the best of our ability. Do we do this perfectly? No. It's why he intercedes for us. (laughs) Do we do this in a way that makes everybody in this room happy? I'm guessing no. 
But I could be convinced otherwise. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't know a church where that is possible. But this is our aim. And I think this is why this series is important, is that all of us can get on the same page with that aim. That we all desire our worship to be Christ-centered because he is the only one worth our, our praise, worth our, our confessing to, as we'll see in a moment, worth giving ourselves to holy. Lastly, when we talk about being Christ-centered, as we go a little bit further down this road, this is really a statement about authority. And this is, this is really a challenge if you want to get into the weeds of our culture today as we talk about authority. Who has authority over who? And, and just, you know, exegeting the culture, we want to have authority over ourselves and nobody else. That's not possible if you're going to be a Christian. It's not possible to be part of the kingdom of God and say that you are authority unto yourself. And so when we talk about Christ-centered worship, we're actually saying that we're coming under the authority of Jesus, our head, as Paul said in Colossians verse 19 that he has authority over us. I don't have authority over you. He has authority over you. Let me make that very clear. Therefore, our service is also centered around the Word of God. Now, why would we do that? Because what is the Word of God about? It's about Jesus. It's not about how to get rich in seven years, which there are books about that. We can sort of laugh at that, but that's a tragedy. It's about Christ and his rescue of you and his love for you. So our worship will be centered around the word of God because the word is about him. The word is him. Submitting to Jesus and the scriptures is the same thing. Now, a word about that. Has that been abused in the centuries past? And will it probably be abused in the future? Yes. But does misuse negate proper use? No. No. Just because that's been abused doesn't mean that we throw out the practice of submitting to the Word of God because it is right and true, or that we don't trust people who administer that Word. So we center our worship around the Word, which is submitting to Jesus, submitting to His Scriptures. And so practically, just a few things of what this means about our service. Jesus gets the first and He gets the last word today. We see that in our call to worship, which comes from his word, and we hear that in his benediction as it comes from him. You don't hear from me. We don't invite somebody to come up and read us a poem that they wrote. And I know some of this sounds, oh, of course we don't. We're Christians. I think we need to remind ourselves of this. And for some folks in here, I'm hearing this for the first time. Why do we have a call to worship from, from Scripture? Why do we have a benediction? You're hearing first and last from your Savior, Jesus Christ. He gets the first and the last word. We take time out of the service to specifically hear from God's Word by way of sermon, what we're doing now. This is not a normal practice in every single church. We, we value the Word because it is Christ. And that's what it's about. We don't just come up and hear somebody speak words of inspiration. We desire to hear from Christ, which is what you have hired me to do. And when I stop doing that, you fire me, Right? That's the way it works. So we desire to hear from him. He is our authority. There's so much more to, to say about this. 
But this is the first implication, that corporate worship must be Christ-centered. That without Jesus, we have no access to God. That He and His Word is our one true authority. And we center our, our lives, our worship, what we give our whole selves wholly to, around Him, around it. We come to hear Him uh, and to worship Him and nobody else. Second, though, we want to display the beauty and the loveliness of Christ in worship. We want to display the beauty and the loveliness of Christ in our worship. I don't think the beauty of the ephod with its precious stones is just by accident. But we want our service to speak of Christ's beauty and loveliness for any who come in here, member or visitor. And this can be done in a thousand different ways, which I think is wonderful. Now, why do we want to hear of Christ's beauty and his loveliness? Because that's what it means for Christ to be our great high priest. To be our access and our advocate. It's seeing his body given for us, torn, right? So that we might be brought near to God, reconciled to him. In other words, the beauty and the loveliness of Christ is his grace and his mercy to sinners who don't deserve to be reconciled. That's the beauty. So, for example, when we come in here and acknowledge that, all, that we are all sinners before God in need of grace, we exalt Christ in that moment. We display and are reminded of his beauty and loveliness again and again and again. And this is why we do a weekly confession of sin followed by the assurance of pardon. Confession should be happening in your life throughout the week, not just in here, by the way. I hope that's happening. But in the unique way that we meet together as God asks us to in corporate worship here, we are doing that together. And in that way, we confess our sin. We are saying that what I thought was lovely what I thought was beautiful, or what I was doing that was against God's word for whatever reason, is not lovely or beautiful as Christ is to me. When we come in and ask the Lord for forgiveness, it's not just a duty, although sometimes it needs to be, but it is a desire that we no longer desire these things. We want Him. And the only way that that desire happens is if we see Christ as what? More beautiful and believable than anything else. We talked about this last week of how we reorder our desires, okay? And let me just give you an example of what I mean by this. True repentance, which is what we're talking about here at this point with confession of sin, true repentance is heart change. It's heart change. And you know in your best relationships, your heart will not change for a tyrant. And I hope that nobody's been under a tyrant, but you've been up you know, under tyrant-like people. Your behavior might change. I don't, want to, I don't want the wrath. But will your heart change to that? No. True repentance is heart change. And, and what the Bible is constantly saying is that when we confess, we don't just confess for the sake of confessing. We confess unto Christ where he comes in and replaces whatever it is that we were going to in the meantime. I think about this as, think about New Year's resolutions. And honestly, how silly they are. But just for the example, right? If, if I say to you, my New Year's resolution is I'm going to start working out and I'm going to be doing this all year, I want you to gently smack me in the face. 
Because why? We all know why New Year's resolutions don't last. Their duty. There has to be something underneath that that grabs my heart and says there's something more than just working out that's going to get me to go do this. What is it? It could be a lot of things. It could be I, my body is just healthier when I exercise, and that's a great thing, and I love how I feel, and this is good for my family, and this is good for you, right? There's a bigger why there. That's desire, not duty. The same thing is happening as we come in here and confess our sin. When we talk about displaying the beauty and the loveliness of Christ, what we are doing is we are saying, this is why Christ is so much more deserving than this over here. And we're being reminded of that as his people. Thomas Chalmers talked about this. He was a scientist and philosopher in the 18th century when he wrote this paper, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And if you haven't had a chance to read it, I would encourage you to read it. And Chalmers bases this off of 1 John 2.15, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so Chalmers poses for himself the question, how shall the human heart be freed from its love for the world? Should we just say, we got to work harder? White knuckle it? Stop lying? <laughs> right? Don't do that. That is, that is the practice of many in the church. Chalmers says that's never going to get it. That's not what the Bible is after either. Chalmers says it has to be desire, delight, not duty that one prefers. It is an affection before it is a commitment. He says this, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have a something to lay hold of and in which if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. In other words, Chalmers is saying we all treasure something and if we get rid of that treasure, whether pleasure, sex, food, money, success, a vacuum will not remain. You and I, we will fill it with something else. And unless that something is more lovely, more beautiful, uh, unless, unless it's something far surpassing whatever that thing was, we will continue on. And so what is Scripture trying to do by the work of the Holy Spirit? It is, it is showing you, convincing you, shaping your heart to see Christ as more beautiful and believable than those other things. That's a lot, what's going on in confession, probably more than you thought. <laughs> I don't know. But that's a start. Because this is how the Spirit changes us. As we shift our desires as we repent unto Christ, as we learn to live and work out the salvation that we have in him, understanding what it means to, 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 for him to be our identity now and not these other things. And at first, and really in our entire lives, but certainly at first as a Christian, it's hard to change the way that we live. But I'm 41 and I don't know, you could say I'm 41 years into this, but I said the prayer at age 12, so do the math. Right. It's still hard. My heart desires what it desires. And I plead for the Lord, both in repentance and in forgiveness, but what? For Jesus to become more beautiful and believable than those other things. And the Spirit is faithful. And the Spirit in its time right, peels back the layers of that sin, 
why my heart does these things. What, what do I think is there? And he does the same thing with us. And we get to come in here as part of our service and be reminded of that, to do that together as his people. Because when we do that, Christ is becoming more lovely and beautiful to us. What could be more crucial than a worship service? What could be more crucial when it comes to giving our whole selves wholly to something? When we're doing it all the time. And we're doing it for what we think is more beautiful and believable than anything else. Our desire is that as we come in here with Christ-centered worship, that we see him as lovely and beautiful. Lastly, and I'm going to cut this short because we're out of time, the last thing that we see about worship as we read this text is that it must be done in community. It must be done in community. Not that, it's not saying that all worship is done in community, but, but worship is, it, God calls his people to worship him in community. Look at, look at uh, go back to Hebrews there as he moves into these therefore statements of these conclusions. Let us draw near. Um, let us hold fast the confession of, of our hope. And then finally, let us what? Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Simply put, worship is to be done publicly. And I'm not saying that he's saying He's, I think he's talking more broadly than just worship, but worship is, is a part of gathering together. We're asked to do the sacrament when we meet and gather together. But something happens to us when we are in crowds. Something very unique happens to the strengthening of our faith when I see you and you see me confessing sin, singing praises to the Lord, praying, hearing our brothers and sisters' stories and testimonies. Christ is not just being exalted and lifted up and made more uh, lovely and beautiful but my faith is being strengthened because I'm meeting and fellowshipping with the people of God. And there's a, again, cutting this short, there's a ton to say about that. There's also another reason why we worship together. And this is where I'll end this. It's because it's a picture of where we're all headed. And part of our service is not just to deal with the present, but to point us to the future. Where are we going? We are children of the promise that Christ is, is going to return, right? And, and, and make all things new. That everybody in here who claims Christ is an eternal being. Though you die, yet shall you live. You will live forever. I've said that before already here. And part of our worship service is a picture, a taste of where we are going. Is it not? Of, uh, not that we're going to be sitting here necessarily listening to and singing, but in some senses we will, but like being together. Being in the presence of God, worshiping him together, whatever that will look like, this is a taste of where we are headed. Look at Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great what? One person hanging out by themselves? No, a great multitude. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Heaven is not your personal VRBO out in the countryside. It is not your walk in the mountains, as lovely as that is. God is gathering a multitude of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and language. And, 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 and in corporate worship, what he calls us to, we get pictures of that and glimpses of that. 
which does what? It strengthens our faith. It reminds us that God is doing something, that he is at work, and he is not finished with what he is doing. The church is here, uh, not just in some static way, going through the motions of rituals from years past, but we are telling a story of what is truly to come. And who's at the center of that story? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Which brings us then to the table where all of these come together. Where Christ is center. Where his beauties and wonders are displayed. And where we as his people together enjoy him now and forevermore. Just like in other parts of of the service, I might add. But in a different way here, together. And why? Because Jesus, friends, has reconciled you to God. He has made access for you. He has advocated and is advocating your case this very minute before God that you may be able to worship him in spirit and truth. Let me pray for us and we'll come to the table together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word as we look at it in Hebrews and This topic is so big and it's so grand that there's so much to be said and it's hard to even start somewhere, but I I pray that this is a place that would feed us, that we would see Christ as central to all that we do, and that that's old hat to us. It'd be good to be reminded of what what is the focal point here. Father, we pray that you would give us glimpses as we come to the table together of what's to come, that as we partake and, and enjoy even This feast that Christ has set before us, is it not a taste of what is going to come when you come to be with your people, when you bring the new heavens and the new earth, that we live with you forever and ever? It will be such as a feast. And in that, your glories, your splendors are made more lovely and beautiful than anything else. And that is what our hearts long for this day. Would you continue that work in us? We are not finished. You're not finished with us. You're continuing to work in us. We pray that you would do that For your glory alone we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.